just found out this week we are in negotiations to get the author of that song, Andrew Peterson, to come and do a concert here at South. So pray that that will go through. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. What a great, great song. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. First line of a famous novel from Charles Dickens, the opening line of the historical novel, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, set in the backdrop of London and France, of Paris in particular, just before the French Revolution. And I admit, I know that line fairly well and have quoted it often. I don't think I've ever read beyond that line. I find the book to be extremely boring. But the rest of the first paragraph is kind of interesting. After he says it was the best of times and the worst of times, he says it was the age of wisdom and it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. <laughs> sounds to me like he didn't have a whole lot to write about. But it also sounds a whole lot like 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because when we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, the very first words are these. But mark this, there will be terrible times. In the last days, it will be the best of times and it will be the worst of times. Open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I can imagine the Apostle Paul, who is in a cell in Rome, a very bad situation, a cell in which he knows he will not escape with his life. Convinced he will die. When we get to chapter 4, it will be abundantly clear that he is not only being poured out like a drink offering, but he knows his departure is very, very soon. The Apostle Paul is writing his last letter, as it were, his last will and testament to Timothy. He's leaving Timothy in charge. Timothy right now is pastoring in Ephesus and he'll get the letter while he's still pastoring in Ephesus. But Paul wants Timothy to come and be with him during these perilous, terrible times. And so he says to him, Timothy, I want you to mark this. I, I want you to remember this. That terrible times will be found in the last days. Now, now, why would Paul remind Timothy of the very thing he already knows? Timothy knows that Paul has been arrested. Timothy knows that Paul not only is incarcerated, but chained and soon will die. Timothy knows that when Paul was first brought before the court, everyone fled from him. That's 2 Timothy 1.15. He was totally deserted by everyone. Timothy knows that the times are bad. Why tell him that again? Perhaps it's because Timothy needs to realize that the times are always going to be bad until Jesus comes. He wants to remind him that this isn't going away. This is not a brief season now it is interesting when you read that first verse. It says, mark this, 
terrible times will come in the last days. The word for times is literally seasons. It means occasional periods of time. So it doesn't mean that it's always going to be bad or always as bad as it has been or will be. There may be efforts where there is a brief respite, but throughout the last days, terrible times will come. The corrupt pop culture all around us is going to be the culture that will always be with us until Jesus comes again to some degree or another. And Timothy needs a dose of realism. I like the fact that the Bible gives us the real picture. What good is a doctor who says to you everything is all right when you have a disease that will soon take your life? The Bible doesn't paint a picture that will somehow get us through the day, even though the picture is a myth. The Bible tells us the truth and then tells us how we need to deal with the truth. So this morning we come in our study of 2 Timothy to get a dose of realism about the times in which we live. And they are terrible times. You say, but pastor, those terrible times are coming in the last days. Yes, but the last days are already here. In fact, from a biblical standpoint, it is easy to establish that the last days began when Jesus came and the last days end when Jesus comes again. It's the inner testament or the inner advent period between the two comings of Christ that we call the last days. When Jesus ascended into heaven, Peter's first sermon was taken from the the prophecy of Joel chapter 2. And Peter said, what is happening right now is what Joel predicted when he said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. What you heard then is happening that now. This is that, is exactly what the original says. This is that. The last days began when Jesus came. And we also read in Hebrews chapter 1 that in various ways God has spoken to us through the prophets. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So the last days began when Jesus comes. And the last days end when Jesus comes again. Which means Timothy was in the last days and you and I. Are in the last days. They may change in their intensity, but they do not change their basic character. That's the point Paul wants to make. Now remember who he's writing to. His young son in the faith, the one he dearly loves, but the son in the faith who is somewhat timid, shy, awkward, hesitating and so Paul has been kind of hammering this same nail all the way through the letter singing this same song don't be ashamed of the gospel don't be ashamed of me the prisoner of the gospel join me in suffering for the gospel Suffer like a soldier in battle, like a farmer tilling the soil, like an athlete trying to win a race. Timothy, this is hard work. 
and the days, the last days, are upon us, and they're evil. The word here for terrible is only used one other time, and it literally means untamable. It means ferocious and cannot be contained. It's only used one other time, and that's in Matthew chapter 8, to describe the Gadarene demoniac that no one could contain. He was ferocious and wild, and so are the days in which we live. That doesn't mean that we can't make an improvement upon them, but we need a dose of reality. The times are always going to be bad. Someone said it's like the Christian church is a ship. Think of a Roman ship in the days when Paul sailed on his missionary journeys. And that ship goes out to sea. What it can envision is not a, a trip that is easy, pleasant breezes, smooth sailing, but a, a, a ship that is going to encounter some rough water and angry pirates. So the circumstances are going to buffet you. And there'll be wicked people who will try, and do, try to upset you. And rob you. And take your life. Those are the last days. And we're in them right now. Aren't you so glad you came to church this morning to be encouraged? It gets worse. It's interesting then that Paul now gives us a description of what the last days are really like. And Bruce read it to us just a, a moment ago. There are some 18 or 19 characteristics of the last days. And they're bad. Uh, but the interesting thing is that six times, one-third of those, the word love is connected to it. Did you notice that? Verse 2, lovers of themselves... Lovers of money. Verse 3, without love. End of verse 3. They do not love what is good. Verse 4, they love pleasure more than they love God. One of the best ways to describe the last days is to say that their love has been perverted. That their love has been inverted and turned upside down. That they love what the, the very things that they should hate and they hate the very one that they should love. I think it was Warren Worsby who said the, uh, the problem with the heart of man is, is the heart of the problem of love. Our problem is that we don't love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And we don't, when we don't love God supremely, all the other vices of life quickly flow in. And so Paul's thinking, young Timothy, if you're going to handle these last days, which are difficult, I'm experiencing it right now, you will too, then I need to tell you what it's going to be like. So let's just look at this briefly. We won't spend a lot of time on it, but this idea of love... People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. Now, this was written in about 60 A.D., but does this sound like today? <laughs> in fact, if you take the first love and the last love, 
you have the great comparison of loving self or loving God? There's the question. Loving self or loving God? If you love yourself, then all of these other sins will easily flow from them. But if you love God supremely, then you have the right focus to deal with all of the issues of the day. But the last days are characterized by people who love themselves. And because of that, they're boastful and proud and abusive. That word is actually the Greek word blasphemy, which means they're abusive with words. Words become their swords. Talk radio, I'm not too sure about this thing. Because they spend so much time attacking other people or uh, social media and there's no defense and words are their weapons. They blaspheme, speak evil of others and it's abusive. Disobedient to parents, that was true in that day and it's true in our day. Although uh, you think of the builder generation, you think of the World War II generation, and when that generation looks at today's generation, wow, what a decline. What a decline there is in respect for parents. I love when I have the opportunity to travel to Asia, I, uh, in places like China or Thailand, because they respect the elderly there. And my gray hair puts me in that category. So I'm going back soon. <laughs> because I don't get the respect I want here, is probably what I'm saying. No, there is a great decline. Because if you love God with all of your heart, then you're going to obey his commandments that say, honor your parents. This age is characterized by be, people being ungrateful and unholy. And by the way, I think to be ungrateful is to be unholy. Without love, the word there actually means natural affection. It's not the eros sexual love. It's not the agape sacrificial love. It's not the phileo friendly love. It is the sturgeon natural love. And in the last days, people will be without natural love, what, which means what? Mothers will kill their children. Now that's unnatural. And fathers will kill their offspring. I say it's unnatural, but we're reading about it almost all the time. They're without natural love. They're unforgiving, irreconcilable, implacable, will not negotiate, will never admit that they're wrong or forgive you for yours. They're slanderous without self-control. Of course, those who are under the Holy Spirit are self-controlled. They're brutal. They're not lovers of the good. They're treacherous, rash, conceited, it sounds like some of these are repeated more than once and there's a slightly different take on them. But then that last one, lovers of pleasure, the Greek word for pleasure is hedonai, where we get the English word hedonism. And hedonism is someone who lives for pleasure. Now pleasure is not bad if it's godly pleasure. 
And I want you to know that if you love God with all of your heart, you will enjoy life and you will find the greatest pleasure of all, being in a right relationship with your creator. But they put pleasure above God and feel that God is a downer and want nothing to do with him. But here's the shocker. I mean, this is really shocking. If you've been following me up to this point and you haven't read ahead, you come to verse 5 and it says they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. We're talking about religious people. <laughs> We're talking about religious people here. A form of godliness. They have the form without the reality. It's shameful to confess, but wickedness runs wild in the realm of religion. Always has. I'm not talking about true religion. I'm talking under the banner and umbrella of that broadest word, religion. Wickedness runs wild. We quoted last week from Bill Maher who said that he believed that flying planes into the towers in New York City was a faith-based initiative. And you know, he's right. That was done in the name of religion. That's brutal. So it's a shame for us to admit this, but it's true. In the Old Testament, Israel, the prophet Amos had to tell his fellow people Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II that all of the prosperity you see around us in the realm of wealth and resources and things is inconsistent with the fact that injustice and wickedness is also prospering. Talk about America. We're a prosperous nation. And I'm thankful for that. But we are extremely prosperous and in wickedness as well. And they're going together hand in hand. That's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. This will be the characteristic of the last days. There's a form of godliness, but we deny its power. Over 100 years ago, J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite authors, who was a bishop in the Church of England, the Bishop of Liverpool, wrote in a book called Formality. Actually, I think it was a pamphlet. Hundreds of people whose whole religion seems to, be, seems to consist only in talk and high profession. There are hundreds of people whose whole religion seems to consist only in talk and profession. They know the theory of the gospel intellectually and profess to delight in evangelical doctrines. They can say much about the soundness of their views and the darkness of all who disagree with them. Yet you will find that these people are often devoid of any practical godliness. They are neither truthful, nor charitable, nor humble, nor honest, nor kind-tempered, nor gentle, nor unselfish, nor honorable. And what shall we say of these people? Oh, they are Christians, no doubt, in name. And yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal 
Christians. Their religion is an empty form. Wow. That's today. In fact, that could be evangelical churches like South Church. You have a form of godliness. On the outside, you name the name of Christ, but there's nothing real inside. That's the sign of the times. You see, true religion combines the outward and the inward, the form and the power. I'm not saying all the forms are bad. I'm just saying it's bad to have the outside without the inside. And so we've got terrible times, get this, because we have terrible teachers who have developed a group of people who are fine with outward religion but don't want inward reality. You say, how do you know that they are teachers? Verse 5, have nothing to do with such people. Now throughout the scripture, Paul said, don't separate yourself from those who are sinners, those who don't know Christ. But when people claim to know Christ and live ungodly in a very open and bold way, Paul said, don't associate with them. Here he says, have nothing to do with them. And if you go down to verse 8, the word teachers is used, at least in the newer translation of the NIV. Also these teachers I'm talking about, like the magicians from Egypt, oppose the truth. We're talking about terrible teachers. Now I don't know where we morphed from the characteristics of the time into the qualities of those who are teaching, or maybe they're identical, but indeed they've had an impact. Last Sunday night, Will Wagner was talking from the book of Jude. Those of you who, there, who are there remember that uh, there's a verse in Jude that talks about these people creeping into our assemblies, and he then called these people the creepers. And that's exactly what these guys are doing as well. They're the creepers. Look at verse 6. These guys are the kind who worm their way, creep their way into the homes and gain control over weak women is one translation, gullible women is another, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, women who are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I can barely finish that sentence before someone says, wow, is that sexist? <laughs> well, I, I, let, me, let me give you a little context and I hope to, to bring balance to it all. It doesn't mean that men don't have these same problems. But remember, we're talking about a specific city, Ephesus. We're talking about a day and time when women had less than a satisfying social position in society. They could not work outside of the home. And we're talking most likely about some women who had resources and means and were looking for position, the very thing that false teachers offered them. We're certainly not suggesting that all women are like this. That is not true. Or that men are not like this. That is not true. But in Ephesus, 
There was a whole hillside of rich homes that were occupied during the days primarily by well-to-do women and some of these looking for position and the false teachers said, here's a perfect place to go. They're called weak women. The Greek actually is little women, which is a pejorative term. It's not like a wonderful novel. It means women of weak intellect and weak moral character. Gullible is sometimes the word that is used. In fact, there's something that actually comes out of the history of this particular time period about Alexander the false prophet who went about the country practicing quackery and sorcery and trimming the fatheads, as he called them, those who would gullibly be taken in by his deception. They hit upon a rich Macedonian woman, well past her prime, but still eager to be found charming. And they lined their pockets fairly well at her expense. Written from the very day. And you've, we've got people calling today religious charlatans, hucksters. Everyone who names the name of Jesus has not been sent from him. Everyone who names the name of Jesus is not possessed by him. We have religious hucksters who will call you or connect with you through the TV and try to get your well-earned money, lining their pockets with your resources if you're gullible enough to be taken in. Some things never change. So these wicked teachers have deplorable methods and they're working today. This is a dose of realism. But here's a little optimism, finally. <laughs> a little optimism and we need a dose of that. Look at verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. And by the way, these are the two magicians who when Moses with the rod of Aaron stood before Pharaoh and threw the rod down and it became a snake, remember that? These magicians did the very same thing through sorcery, through deception, which is exactly what these false teachers are doing. In fact, what Paul is doing is saying these two things are very much alike, these two uh, groups of people. As Janus and John Braze opposed Moses, so these teachers opposed the truth. They're men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith concerned, they're shipwrecked. They're rejected. They're unbelievers with a form of godliness. Beware. But here's the encouraging thing. They're not going to get very far. Because as in the case of those men in Moses' day, their folly will soon be clear to everyone. They imitated Moses, but of course, if you remember, there was a time when they could not replicate his miracles and they were to be found out. As indeed, nothing but magicians, sleight of hand. Their influence is transient, it is limited, error is self defeating. And one day truth will be vindicated. Error and time will be exposed because it is short-lived. And as we 
heard from the book of the Revelation in song. There is one day in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord and they will say worthy is the Lamb who opened the seals and through his sacrifice will save people from every tongue and tribe and nation. You have to remember this. Remember the parable in Matthew 13 of God sowing seed in the field and the field is the world and the devil is sowing tares at the same time God is sowing wheat the devil is sowing weeds and they grow up together and it won't be until the day of judgment when the Lord knows them that are his and they are publicly declared In the invisible church, evil is ever mingled with the good and sometimes even seems to have the upper hand. So you've got this corruption that we've already talked about. But now Paul says to Timothy, it's not going to last forever. And I want to emphasize contrast. So we're now at verse 10. And in verse 10, Paul says to Timothy... But as for you, two little words in the Greek, sude, and they're mentioned six times in every chapter. Not six times in every chapter, six times in the book, but in every chapter. Once in chapter one, twice in two, three, and four. But as for you is the best translation. I think you see it also in verse 14. Unfortunately, the English doesn't always translate it the same way and you don't see the repetition. But I want you to see it today. What Paul is saying is this is the way it is, but as for you, be different. Be different. Be in the world, but not of the world. In contrast to the declining morals around you, be different than the world that is around you, that surrounds you. As J.B. Phillips said in his famous paraphrase of Romans chapter 12, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. And that's exactly what the world is trying to do to the church. They're trying to do to us. Recently, an article in USA Today written by an American Baptist, I think he used to be a pastor, and now he's on the editorial staff or at least a freelance writer. They picked up his article in which he said, Evangelicals, you need to understand that the Bible is not true and give up your convictions and agree with what's happening in the world. I mean, he's bold with it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold be squeezed into this mold the atmosphere of secularism can easily seep into the church the pressure to conform is immense it's hideous it's relentless this is what Paul said but as for you church be different because Jesus was by the way if they hated him and you're like him, they're going to hate you too. A servant is not above his master. In this world you will have tribulation. Look at verse 12 for a second. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, will experience trouble. 
This is a dose of reality. So what do we do? Let me go back to that list of loves. Remember the first one was they love themselves and the last one was they don't love God. This is what you and I need to do. Flip it. Did not God command us to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, both in the book of Deuteronomy and repeated in the book of Matthew, and to love our neighbor? That's the great commandment. Love God with all you've got. That's the answer. Love God with everything you have. That's the only way to stand in this evil day. Be kind and loving with friends around you because they're not the enemy, they're victims of the enemy, like you used to be. But don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now here's the tragedy. Well, let me say this. Warren Worsby has a great quote here. In this universe, there is God, and there are people, and there are things. Right? Right? If we start worshiping ourselves, we ignore God, we start loving things, and we start using people. Let me say that again. If we start loving ourselves, we ignore God, we love things, and start using people. And Dr. Wiersbe said, this is a formula for a miserable life. He knows because he was a man of the word and he knows because he's in the presence of Christ as of about three weeks ago. Love God with all of your heart. Now here's the tragedy. 30 years later, the apostle John writes in the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4, to the church at Ephesus, I have something against you. What is it? You've left Your first love. May it never be said of South. Let's pray. Is he worthy of blessing and glory and honor and power? He is. Lord, in this wicked day, I pray that we would not become cynical. I pray that we would not become bitter when we are mistreated. I pray that we would not lash out at our friends and other people who need our love and the gospel. I pray that we would not wear out and succumb and be squeezed into the world's mold. I pray that we would stand up with love for God and love for our neighbor to the glory of the one who saved us by his grace. In Jesus' name, amen.